We'll open with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, about the fourth or the fifth book from the back of the Bibles. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in the pew rack just in front of you. You can take that and turn to the book of Hebrews. We'll be starting in the fifth verse of the first chapter, so we're still at the beginning of a new series. This is, in fact, the second week. Uh, One of my Maybe my second favorite thing, if I could put prayer and preaching in order, um, uh, preaching has got to be number one, Um, but maybe a close second or a tie for number one, maybe that's the way I should say it, is to hear our elders pray, so to hear Chris pray and all the other men pray and our deacons pray week in and week out, Um, and that's one of the reasons why I love evening prayer. I hope you can make that a priority. We get to hear prayers of God's people in real time on the lips of our brothers and sisters as we pray from around the room and in small groups with old with young, those suffering cancer right now, and those with the sun up who just got a promotion. We can hear about those things and praise God and pray for help, and we can do all of that together. And uh, so 430 is a beautiful compliment once a month to what we do here, and I encourage you to, to come if you can. There is a crisis of authority in our day. Who are we to listen to? Who are we to look to? It seems that the more authority a leader is given, the less you can trust them. Uh, Celebrities have a kind of implied authority in our culture by virtue of the fact, very simply, that they are known by lots of people. That's what makes a celebrity a celebrity. They're just known. Uh, And yet they're looked to as authorities. And yet who can trust a celebrity just on that account? Uh, Politicians likewise are granted all kinds of authority by the electorate. And yet we aren't always sure what to believe. Which makes this last week an interesting week for reflecting on uh, at least England's monarchical system. They have uh, several... Uh, tiers of government, branches of government, and they also have a symbolic branch of government in the monarchy. And we don't have a, an official that, that occupies their post for, I don't know, what was it, some 70 years? She was appointed in 1947, crowned rather. Um, and so it's been a week of reflecting on Queen Elizabeth's life. And thankfully, much credit it seems to God, and her faith to her faithfulness in her various roles. She seems to have been a woman that could be trusted. And so with her passing, there is something the world feels it has lost. So many others, even in the royal family, you just can't trust. And so humanity will make its way forward, finding, appointing, and trusting leaders and listening to voices. To whom should we give our attention as a church? To whom should we listen? If last week, the author of this book arrested our attention with one long sentence about the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom God has finally and fully spoken, and in that way said, listen to him, then In this text, in verses 5 through 14, which we are about to read, he takes that attention which he has arrested, and now he 
focuses it with one long string of Old Testament quotations in order to prove from the written scriptures what he has said about God's Son. Read with me. Listen now to God's word. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes the angels, his angels, winds and ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear like a robe, roll them up, like a garment, they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? And this is God's word for us this morning. It's a bit of a pile-on. You might not want to do this in a conversation. Know your, know your friend. Know your spouse. That's a lot of quotes. Even if you were to prepare a speech, I've received papers or heard talks before where I was offering critique or engaging as a, a teacher, and maybe the critique was, I think half of that was quoted material. Uh, not a great way to, to do an essay. Yes, quote some, some authors and some sources, um, but don't, you know, fill up your 600 words or your 1,200 words or your 10 pages with other people's material with, with some transitions. Uh, ultimately, uh, uh, that, doesn't, that doesn't benefit your hearers. It doesn't make your case. That's kind of what he does here, though, isn't it? It's mostly just quotes. Uh, is he trying to show he knows his Bible? I'm trying to fill up the page, meet his, uh, meet his word count. No, of course, that's not it. But it does seem like a bit of a pile-on, and it's a, lot for, it's a lot for our ears. Maybe a few observations. Um, he is quoting the Old Testament, which tells us that the Christian reader and the church uh, ought to listen up. He's assuming this is authoritative, that the Old Testament is authoritative for us. And it's also instructive. So while Jesus is God's full and final word, well, he hasn't left the Old Testament behind. And he's not getting these quotes out of the way in order to move on from the Old Testament. It is through the Old Testament that we come to know truly the Son, for the Holy Spirit has given us these very words and speaks to us today concerning the Son through these words. Uh, the Old Testament is authoritative. It's instructive for us it's also coherent. He is pulling from Deuteronomy and themes that go back to Genesis and several, most though, from the Psalms. 
And he is assuming that there is a coherence to the message of the Old Testament. A, although complexity, there is a simple matter, a simple person at the center of the message of the Old Testament. The Messiah that the Old Testament promises. And it may not always be plain to us how a particular text relates to the Messiah. But here, he gathers a number of texts. And he makes a case that what he has said at the start concerning Jesus is true of him from the scriptures. That what he said concerning Jesus, that the Father spoke by the prophets, but in the last days he's spoken to us by the Son, who has appointed heir of all things, through whom he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by his word of power. And he makes purification for sins and sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So much of that is reiterated and reinforced by these many quotations. And in that note about coherence in the Old Testament being coherent, as we get into this here, um, we won't spend all the time we might want to on every verse. Some verses I will puzzle out and solve some problems and some historic misunderstandings, even some difficulty in translation at times. That's not always necessary or even uh, helpful, Um, But in this case, on this particular sermon, we'll do some puzzling through. You'll go into the study with me a little bit. And I think that will help you in this case. Um, But you'll notice that in the Old Testament, there are direct promises about Christ. But then he's quoting a bunch of passages that don't sound like direct promises concerning Christ. You might have heard, Jesus fulfills 437 Old Testament prophecies. I just made up a number. Um, the thing is when you get into the New Testament and the way the New Testament proves Jesus fulfills the Old Testament often these quotes are just they don't really sound like that at all and there's no reason for you to be uncomfortable with your Bible and sort of him haw and brush you know scoot along a little bit I'm sure someone understands that at least in a few cases I'll help you see how it is that Jesus fulfills this passage but at the head it's important to make a distinction between direct promises and divinely designed and discernible, with eyes to see and ears to hear, patterns which lead to Christ. So, remember with me in our series through the book of Leviticus, how we said that the tabernacle, the priesthood, and the sacrificial system, were even the feasts, all of that was a pattern, like a little, like a little model in miniature, of the real thing, which is the Lord Jesus and his complete work. Well, it is like that, and and the author of Hebrews will get into this book, will argue exactly along those lines, that there is heavenly things of which the earthly things, like the tabernacle, is a shadow, a copy of the heavenly things. You see, it's a copy of the heavenly things. And Moses was given a pattern when he was on the mountain of the, the thing that he was to make down on earth, which was a pattern. And in the Old Testament, it's not just the structure or the tent that was kind of like a pattern with the entryway being representative of this current age and the inner parts representative of that very presence of God, even symbolic of the age to come. But the kingship is like that too. David as king and the kingship and all that it represented, that too, that institution of the kingship in the Old Testament is itself a pattern of the great king who would come. 
And so as the New Testament authors read their Old Testament, and as the Old Testament authors are reading the Old Testament passages that come before them, they are reading it just like that. And you'll see a bit of that today. So remember, Jesus fulfills not only direct promises, as if the rest of it is just other material, uh, you know, helpful stories for being inspired and moral tales. No, he fulfills direct promises, but also discernible and divinely intended patterns. And how do we know when we've got a discernible and divinely intended pattern? Well, God tells us in his word, like he's doing right here on the page here. As you will, and we will see together. Sometimes what I'm talking about, these patterns, is called typology. Think of the word typical. What's typical? What's a pattern? What's normal? Typology. You think of the word group as we use it in English. Type, typology, typical. Think of those words as going together. Uh, I like the language of patterns, but if you've heard of the language of typology, that's also maybe a more technical theological term. To be distinguished from mere analogy or allegory or symbolism in a simple fashion. My point in that is there's a technical theological thing that's happening as the readers are interpreting the scripture as the scriptures unfold. It's not arbitrary. They're not pulling it out of, uh, out of nowhere. It's not, that makes me think of this. No, we want to be textual and biblical in our reading of the whole Bible. We want to read the Bible like the Bible reads the Bible, and today we'll get a little bit of help in that. But we begin with angels. We have to talk about angels, right? How many times did we read about angels in this passage? And the first thing we need to say about angels is that they really are awesome. Angels are fantastic. Um, you know, you don't want to see one, and that might surprise you. Wouldn't it be great to have an angel, you know, appear? Nah, not necessarily, yes, but you'd have to be told not to fear. You'd have to be instructed that you wouldn't die uh, because they were very bright and very great and powerful, and it was the presence of God through his, his mediatorial agent, his representative there, that would shock you. Now, angels are awesome. This passage is a contrast between Jesus and angels, but it's not a diss on angels. That's important to make out here. Uh, some say that surely the author is addressing a preoccupation with angels that the original audience had. You see in the first century, and there are texts that are hovering around in the first century literature where various Jewish sects would make too much of angels. Maybe there's a temptation to worship angels. Um, that may be a little bit of what's going on here. I would just find it weird in knowing this book that right out of the gate, he decides to lay seven Old Testament quotes down and finish what is for us a whole first chapter by dealing with a parochial problem of angel worship or obsession among his readers and never quite come back to that exactly. Uh, it seems a little too occasional to me. And as it is, there's a better argument that he's doing something a little more straightforward, an argument that can be made right from the text around us, and I'll explain that a bit. But let's talk about what angels are. Uh, first, angels are real. 
They're real. They're mentioned 100 times in the Old Testament. They're mentioned 160 times in the New Testament. Uh, they're in the Bible. They're, they're real. Uh, there are many uh, angels. So Revelation 5, 11 will speak of myriads and myriads of angels worshiping around the throne of the Lord Jesus. Um, well, that's a lot. Myriads, that's a way of saying a lot. Uh, they're typically, usually invisible. Here at the end of the passage, verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits? So they're typically invisible. When they appear, which they may, they typically appear in the, perhaps the form of a man, but in blazing, glorious light, a human would not have seen anything like it. Uh, angels are powerful. This blazing light is a symbol of the glory of God and of their power. And we'll see they're identified with even nature and nature's winds and flame of fire. It may be that passage quote there that it is that as all nature and nature's doing is identified with God and his doing providentially that that angels are in the mix somehow. Maybe that what that what that's what that's saying. It's not obvious what it's saying. It's certainly not saying that when angels are winds or angels are fire. And angels are messengers in the Old Testament and in the New. The Hebrew and the Greek translation is it's, it translates to messenger, which is their primary, not only vocation. They deliver messages. They're delivery people. That's their job. So that's a little bit on on what angels are. And you can see why there would be a temptation, and there was, to make a lot of them and to puzzle about them and, and to write literature on them. And there's first century literature on angels, just like there's, for, there's, there's literature in our own day on angels. The Bible is the, the best-sold book, but it might be that books on angels are, are better read at certain times at least. But I don't think that's what he's focusing on. That is this pastoral specific issue of an obsession with angels. It's, it's less to do and not to do, I don't think, with what they're going to make of angels, but what, of, what they are tempted to make of Christ. It's not that they're making too much of angels, it's that they're tempted to make too little of Christ, perhaps to demote Christ as one among angels, which would be tempting to do, because these were persecuted Christians. There was a lot of pressure in their environment Cancellation pressure. To turn Jesus into anything except the God-man and only way to God and the Messiah about whom the Old Testament speaks. The full and final revelation of God and the radiance of his glory and his exact imprint. And the one who makes purification for all of our sins. There's a lot of temptation to find some other way to believe in Jesus and not all of that. But this passage, if it does anything for us, tells us that there is no believing in Jesus and benefiting from his work apart from believing in the testimony concerning Jesus in the scriptures, the Old and the New Testaments. The biblical Jesus is the only one that can save and the only one there is. So persecution was a major issue. And this has to do with authority, who these people, these readers would trust. Angels were mediators of the word of God and they delivered the law and they represented the deliverance 
of the covenant to the people of God. We looked at this last week, but you'll take a look at chapter 2 with me. Sometimes we can figure out why he's talking about angels if we keep our ears open and keep reading. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift from it. Since the message, message, declared by messengers, angels, proved to be reliable. So, don't drift away from the message delivered by the messengers. He's saying the message is better than the messengers, very simply. Um, The messengers come with the authority of God. The message that they deliver is better than that. It is the very manifestation of the authority and the rule of God in his king, who is Christ. You can't have angels and not have their message. In other words, if they're great, how much greater is the message that they they bring? And as we'll look at next week, he continues, in every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? There's a lesser to greater argument there too. And he's saying there is that if you rejected the message of the angels before Christ came and there was just retribution, how much greater would be the, re- the retribution if you reject the full and final revelation of God and the one they were talking about, the Son, Christ? So you see, the reason why angels are coming up here isn't because of an issue that they had that we're going to have to try to figure out a way to connect with. And we have our obsessions and and distractions, and there'd be something to that. It has to do with reverting to a lesser authority. It has to do with keeping some of what God has given, but not the son that God has given. There's no Christianity without Christ. There's no benefiting from the Bible in any spiritually meaningful sense without the one the Spirit wrote of, Jesus. So the reason this is here is because of a crisis of authority that these readers have. And so he appeals to them concerning angels. And that's what we're what we're doing here with this topic of angels. So we start by saying they're, they're awesome. We don't need to diss angels. We probably wouldn't want to do that anyways. And um, we should be thankful for them and give praise to God for them, even if they aren't the, the focus of our attention. Consider that this passage, and it's good to do the work that I just did, and we'll do some more work on this, because they're in the Bible, but keeping things in order, this passage, which is the longest passage I can think of on angels, is not about them. (laughs) And it's trying to get you to listen to them so that you'll pay attention to Christ. You see? When you watch basketball games or sports, they always have another stat that just got broken. Computers have done this to us. Too many stats. Too many, you know, on the third day when he was 38 and five weeks in combination with playing with two other 38-year-olds and a 40-year-old and something else, uh, seven touchdowns were made. I mean, they've almost got it down to that. 
Uh, I, don't, I don't have a stat book on teaching on angels. I just know my Bible well enough. That's all we got. Like, I don't know another passage that's paragraph length that, that synthesizes the Bible's teaching on these things. And yet the attention is all going somewhere else. Yeah, the best stat, stat section we've got on angels is, is actually about Jesus. So that just helps us keep things in proper order. Angels are awesome, but the sun is greater than angels. There are four themes here in this passage. We could break it down by Old Testament quote. There are seven of them. We could break it down a little differently by three pairings. It appears that that a pair, a pair, and a pair can go together with the concluding quote from Psalm 110. I think the most convincing way to go about this is thematically. There are four themes in order that appear in the first four verses that appear in order in these verses. In the first place, we have the theme of Christ's appointment to heir. He was appointed heir of all things. And in verses 5 through 9, we have our attention set squarely on Jesus' authority as the ruler of all things, the receiver of worship, God's king, heir. The second theme we see is that of Jesus as the creator of all things, the one through whom the world was created, and we have a word about that in verse 10. And Jesus' existence, his eternal, his eternal existence as the Son, the radiance of the glory of God, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. And then we have a word concerning his enthronement, where he sits down, and, and in verse 13, sit at my right hand, and a quote from Psalm 110, exactly where verses 1 through 4 left off. So what this appears to be to me is, a one-sentence starting shot. Boom! And then he takes a pass through his Old Testament to prove what he has said. And in this way, it's like setting the nail and then hammering it in with four strikes. You can think of it that way. I was in the garage in the last week or so. so Often the illustrations come from the things I was doing on, on the property. So there are four reasons to give our undivided attention to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is enthroned on high. And I say enthroned on high because I think it's the enthronement of Jesus, God's anointed King, his enthronement at his resurrection and then exaltation that is the, the ballast for the whole passage. It gathers all the material. It begins and ends with his, his reign. And unlike other portions of this book, we'll, which will put our attention on other parts of his work, this seems to be on his glorious enthronement as king. 
And what an encouraging word that would be for persecuted Christians who need to hear that the Jesus they serve and and who is costing them so much is enthroned as king over his enemies. He is over angels. If angels are great and authoritative and sent from God, oh, he is over the angels. We'll put our attention now from verses 5 to 9. We begin in verse 5 with two quotes, Uh, one from Psalm chapter 2. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Has he ever said that to an angel? He never said that to an angel. But he says it of his son. He says it of Jesus Christ. Well, Psalm chapter 2, which we looked at last week. You don't need to turn there with me, but I will be flipping around the Bible a little too much. You'll stress me out if you try, but you can try. But I might leave you behind. So Psalm chapter 2 begins the book of Psalms. It's a kind of introduction. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain and the kings of the earth sent them, uh, set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let's, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords. The nations and the kings of the earth laugh at heaven as they build their kingdoms and insist on their way, and yet what does God do? He sits in the heavens and he laughs, and he holds them in derision. They are nothing to him. Verse 6 says, For me, he says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I've installed my king. Who is his king? He's put David on his holy hill, and yet there's more to come. For in installing David as king, David received A promise that a future son of David would be a king on the throne that would have no end. That would be perfectly righteous. A king without sin. A king that would be the answer for all of humanity. I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and the nations will be your heritage. And he gives the whole world to the Son, all the nations to the Son, fulfilling that promise to Abraham. And through him, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Well, however that's going to look, it's going to happen through a Davidic king. And it will happen and that all the nations of the earth will be given to the Son. And all wicked rulers will be put down and there will be no nations in opposition to heaven's king. Or again from 2 Samuel 7, 14. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. That's talking to David, God talking to David about his greater son one day. He will be to me a son. Now that language of son, Israel is called God's son. And as we talked last week, we don't need to be thinking of the overlap in terms of human birth and begottenness in that sense, but it has to do with identification and belonging and expression and, and love. Israel was God's son. How much closer a relationship could he insist on and, and seek with his people? And David here is said to be God's son. God's king is the ultimate one who expresses God and is identified with him and is the the focus 
of his love. And the one through whom anyone that God loves covenantally will come through. This, this son of David is the one to watch. And the whole Old Testament is looking out for the son of David that's going to come. Because anything God's ever intended to do for humanity, promised through Abraham and through Moses, is going to come about through this son of David. So we're on the lookout. And that psalm puts us on watch for this son to come. But there's some confusion out there in the teaching and in history, sometimes around these verses. Not you are my son, today I have begotten, begotten you. I will be one day a father to him and he shall be to me a son. Um, is, is the son created? Is Jesus a created being? Well, he was born, Jesus Christ was, but the son, the eternal son, now in the person of Jesus Christ, uh, has no beginning and he is not created. And the Arian heresy in the fourth century said that before he was begotten, Jesus was not. The Son was not. He was created. And that created quite a stir because Christians read their Bibles. And enough of that kind of thing got Christian leaders together to articulate what they saw on the pages of Scripture, which was very consequential. And they put it like this at Nicaea, that Christ is of the same essence of the Father, distinct from, but of the same essence of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. Those are different things. Being of the same substance with, with the Father. And that's a helpful way to express what we see here. This here, when he says, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son, isn't a denial of the eternal sonship of Christ, that the second person of the Trinity has always been the Father's, the God's self-expression in the person of the Son. Son here refers to the human sonship of the Son of David, the King. Sometimes in looking for the divinity of Christ in every passage, and there's another one in here we tend to do that with, we miss his humanness and all that's loaded in his humanness. For Jesus is that human son of David, king, who comes. And all that the king was expected to be, he is. And so I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Yes, at his enthronement, at his exaltation, he becomes king. He's enthroned and identified as the son of David, seated on his throne, installed, coronated as king. We have just such a thing happening over the pond right now. With king Charles III. This is a coronation psalm. Both of these psalms, Psalm 2 and... Um, Oh, excuse me, I forget the other one here. Uh, but Psalm 2 is, was understood by Israel as an enthronement psalm in the use of her liturgy. So that's even in a way of interpreting what's going on here. This, these passages are not referring to his incarnation. So look with me at verse 6. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels worship him. Some hear that and they think firstborn, born, physically born, into the world. 
The same word is translated in the next uh, chapter as world to come. Really, that's what he's talking about. When he says, let all the angels worship him. And they imagine the angels worshiping at the arrival of Jesus. But that was actually directed to heaven. And either way, the passage from which this verse comes is speaking of worship on account of the proper righteous judgment of the Lord. Uh, Turn with me to Deuteronomy 32. This is toward the beginning of the Bible. Maybe one reason why we shouldn't see it as the incarnation. And in a way, this is making the whole passage more simple because you can see how each verse is actually speaking of the same, the same thing. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 32 Verse 43, this is the song of Moses before he foretells his death. And he closes the song with this. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods. For he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. This is the verse that's being quoted. When you hear all gods there, uh, and other texts in the Old Testament, you'll hear sons of God from time to time. This is the Old Testament's way of referring to what we might call the divine council. God's angels. Sometimes he beckons the angels and he talks to the angels. And I could stitch several verses together for you to show that that is what he's talking about there. Not to get too distracted, though. Except that when we come over to the passage that we're in now, it says, let all the angels worship him. So that's actually how this passage is interpreting that passage. Not gods, but angels. So back to Hebrews chapter 1. So, and again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says... Let all the angels worship him. So we're doing some investigative work. The passage that he's quoting from Deuteronomy is talking about the end times judgment in which he makes all things right and puts down those who hate him and pursued his people for their death. And says there he renews them in their land. He brings about a new creation. Now what to do about this firstborn word then? Well, firstborn doesn't mean, in the case of Jesus, whenever it is used in the New Testament, the first one who was born... Physically, the firstborn in Old Testament times would be the preeminent son, the one who extended the father's authority and had a share of his authority, the one who would get the lion's share of his inheritance, the one who was most closely identified with the father. Preeminence and superiority. Jesus is the preeminent one. That's all that means. He's the preeminent one. And again, when he brings the firstborn, his preeminent into the world. He says, let all the angels worship him. Christians hearing this word who are being persecuted, hear this, that that man Christ Jesus who is crucified is raised, and more than that, he is exalted, he's enthroned, and he is seated. And I'm calling on all the angels to worship him because I will judge 
all wickedness through him. And there will be no sin and no death and no evil in the end. And this is an encouraging, an encouraging word. And of the angels, verse 7, he says, He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame, a flame of fire. We've discussed this briefly already. Wind is not angels and fire are not angels. But the angels, I think this simply means they are at work in the, the realm of creation carrying out God's word and works. Not only do they deliver God's word as messengers, but they carry out his works and are identified with the things that he does in history for his people. Well, the angels are doing whose bidding? Well, his. They're servants of him, not his firstborn, identified with him. You see? So if angels are great, messengers, servants who do his bidding, how much greater the son who sends them? Who shares the Father's authority? And that's a quote from Psalm 104. And in these passages, they often speak about Yahweh, the Lord. And in this case, these verses are identified with Jesus. Verse 8. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The O God there probably is not an Old Testament very direct giveaway that that the Davidic Son will be divine. Uh, O God there is likely shorthand for that one who stands in the place of God on earth. Uh, Moses was referred to this way with respect to Pharaoh. The judges were referred to this way. This is my, my saying, wait before we say, we've got Jesus as God here on the page. Uh, there are richer and truer and clearer ways in which he is explicitly identified as God. And I don't think that one is necessarily as clear. Your throne, O God, to the Son, he says, is, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And this is a reference to Psalm 45 concerning God's king. And what do we learn about the rule of Jesus here? We have spoke about his authority, his relationship with the Father, which is unique. But here we see what it's like. It's righteous. It is a righteous rule. And it is not only righteous, but it gives way to gladness. Therefore, your God, your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. This son promised in the Old Testament through whom all of God's promises would be fulfilled is nothing less than the Lord Jesus himself who came and lived and walked the earth and for whom these Christians and for whom we suffer. And he is enthroned forever and ever. So he's over them, the angels. He's also before them. Verse 10, And you laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens, they are the work of your hand. 
The Lord laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning. You see, here it is, Yahweh. Uh, Here's an Old Testament passage speaking about the one true and living God. Worship him alone. And yet we've got quotes from the Old Testament here, not only speaking of the worship of the Son, but identifying Jesus as this Lord in, in an in an immediate sense of the sun. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. What God does, Jesus does. The Father plans and creates. Jesus is the agency of creation. As words are to you, and you create and do with words, so the Son is the self-expression of the Father, the one through whom all things are, are made. But more than that, Jesus that the Son not only is before angels, but He outlasts them. They will perish, the things that God has made, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, like a robe. You'll roll them up, get rid of them, they'll be changed. Now I say He can, he, he can outlast them, that's, that's on purpose. We expect angels to be around forever, but their lives will be sustained as ours will, will mere mortals by the eternal sustaining power of the sun. I had a garment wear out this week. I was putting on a nice shirt for an important occasion and a button popped. Thank you someone in the office for fixing it very quickly. Shirts wear out. I'm at the gym in the morning with a friend and I wear different undershirts that aren't very nice. I mean, they're black. But, you know, they get little holes. And he's like, it's that one again. The hole right there. Yeah, they wear out. I'll throw it away, man. Um, sometimes I'll see a photo from the 1920s and have this thought. All those clothes are gone. I don't know why that occurs to me. But, like, all the clothes are gone. No one's wearing any of that stuff anymore. And that's a lot of clothes. Um, clothes, there's some things that just wear out. This one's really accessible. We all get this. Um, clothes wear out in the cre- whole creation. It's kind of like your clothes. It's kind of like your clothes that wear out and get holes in it. Just... But Christ isn't like that. He's not like that. He doesn't wear out. He doesn't get old. We don't move on from him. But you, the son, you're the same. In your years, they have no end. He's over them, the angels. He's before them. He outlasts them. And he has more to offer than they do. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand and I will make your enemies a footstool for your feet? That's a quote from Psalm 110, which we read last week. And this is a promise. God's speaking That he will install his son, the Davidic king, on his throne and put all of his enemies under the feet of his son. This is an inclusio. They call it that. We began with a question for to which of the angels did God ever say? And in texts like this, you don't have headers and subheaders and points on a screen. What you have are these verbal rhetorical indicators that were coming in for a landing. And to which of the angels did he ever say? 
rhetorical question. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Now, he talks about Jesus, the, the, the son's enthronement at the head of this section and at the end. Now, at the beginning, he's, not, he's speaking about the nature of his rule and his authority. And here, it's the occasion. Sit. And then how long? Until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Angels can't do that. As great as they are, just imagine a messenger of light to you personally with a word from God. You're still dead in your sin. The Son is enthroned after having purified our sins through his work on the cross, taken all of our sins away, proven that he could do so by being raised from the dead, and so defeating death, the enemy, and the enemy of the devil, because in being raised from the dead, he doesn't just defeat death for himself, but he died to win for himself his people. What a shock that must have been to the angels. What a shock that must have been to Satan. What a shock in the invisible heavenly realm. What God pulled off. The Son of God was stricken and here he is now risen. And now he's seated. There's David's son. Oh, and it's better than some mere earthly throne down here. It is a heavenly throne. And of course, that's what the Old Testament was expecting in these kinds of psalms that we've been quoting here this morning. The Son can do for us what no one else can. What no author with a near-death experience can. And not speculations, but true words from angels apart from the Son. There's no forgiveness of sins and there's no hope in the face of death. And there is no hope in the face of such cruelty and wickedness in the world. A woman captured and shoved in an SUV and killed in a nearby house and discovered. Where where is justice? I, I mean, is there even a way? There's no human way to bring justice about for that. And God sees and knows a thousand million times more injustices. And you know some yourself. Well, there's an end to all of that. The Lord says to his son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And praise God, there is a way not to be made a footstool for his feet. For we were his enemies. For the Lord Jesus died for his enemies. And so the invitation is yours. Listen to the Son, listen to Christ, come to Him for the purification of your sins, and then submit to His righteous and happy, glad rule. And then suffer with the saints who are receiving this word, knowing that Christ is worth it, and He is our only hope in life and in Death for an answer to the injustices in the world and for an answer to our own sin. He offers something that angels do not. And so let's make now a final turn to angels again. 
The last thing I want to say to you about angels isn't something about angels exactly either. And that is that they are there for you. They're there for you. Could you see that? You put that on your mirror. Angels are there for me. Um, I want to circle the you part. Verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits? Are they not all just ministering spirits sent out to serve? Why? For the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. You. So the son has a special relationship with the father. But you have a special relationship with the father if you're with him. He takes you where he is. He intercedes for you. Draw near to him. The son is before all created things. And you will live happily forever in a new creation if you're his. You will never wear out. Feel like your body's wearing out? Feel like this world is wearing out? That's exactly what it's doing. And it will be rolled up. And these are good things that God has made. And we celebrate and enjoy them and give him praise for them. What the Bible teaches, this age will come to an end. And a new age will come. A new creation in which righteousness dwells. Angels are there for you. So, does the author of this book have your attention now? Does the Lord Jesus, who will speak to us through this word in the preaching of it, have your undivided attention? Let us give it to him as we continue in our series through Hebrews. Let's pray. Father, we didn't all prepare very well last night for Sunday church. We didn't all prepare very well this morning for it. Uh, Some of us are tired. Some of us feel like our bodies are wearing out. And so we acknowledge in prayer now that that's exactly what's going on. And you make up for all of it by your grace. And you've given us grace in the hearing of your word now. And we pray for more grace as we listen to this word of exhortation over the coming weeks and months through this book, that you would help us to fix our full attention on your full and final word, the Lord Jesus, who has purified us from sin and who is powerfully raised from the dead and enthroned at your right hand and who is an authority we can trust. In whose name we pray, amen.